Hey, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Kevin with Via Media. Thank you, uh, first of all, so much for uh, Spark Church for co-sponsoring this event. Hey, everybody from my home church. So glad you guys are here. So if you have any questions about who we are, check out spark.church and viamedia.center. Tonight, um, oh my goodness, Dr. Sandra Richter, who is the uh, Robert H. Gundry Chair. All these na- all the names always trip me up. The Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College and the author of two phenomenal books. First one is Epic of Eden, A Christian Entry into the Old Testament, which is a book that our church uh, uh, assigns to everybody who comes uh, through and takes classes and stuff, a, a fundamental, necessary work. But tonight we're going to talk about Stewards of Eden, what scripture says about the environment and why it matters. Sandy, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. I am humbled, honored, and delighted to be able to speak with you tonight about all of this. Me too. Thank you for the invitation. Humbled, all right. delighted, honored, all that good stuff. And look at you. You're at, You're actually out in the beautiful environment, which is makes for a perfect setting. And um, if we get interrupted by our, my chickens, Kevin, I just thought it would add That's perfect. That's yep. perfect. If you come to our church, there's children running around all the time. So <laughs> chickens, we'll just add children and chickens. And I put my dogs in the car. So now I actually feel really horrible about what I've just done to, to set up for the event. Um, I would like to start actually with the bookends of your okay. book, where you end and then what you began with. Those two mm-hmm. elements there, I think, are going to frame a little bit of what I want to extract um, out of the conversation that is just so critically important. You sum up the entirety of your work at the end by saying, I am completely convinced that the redemption of all creation is the gospel. Therefore, creation care is not merely a message of social justice a wise approach to life on this planet, or a political action item. It is instead a life posture that reflects the character of God and embodies the telos, or the end, or the aim, or the goal, of his plan. What is the will of God regarding creation? That Yahweh Elohim took the human, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend to it and protect it. So that's how you end. You end with creation care, being the gospel that is like the the central essence so and then you begin the book by saying on page two why has the church historically the moral compass of our society gotten so lost on this topic so my opening salvo to you is to explain one how in the world is creation care or environmentalism or whatever words maybe you might want to expand upon that Mm -hmm the gospel which might be a radical idea to some and then second if it really is the gospel then why has the church gotten so lost all right first of all fabulous question and thank you for spending so much time investigating the issue in the book that you're asking these fabulous questions. So let me clarify first. I would not say that creation care is the gospel. Mm. I would say that the redemption of this planet is the gospel. And those are separate topics. Mm. And you're helping me, actually, because I, I had a, a fairly strident critique come back at some point in time where uh, I was uh, criticized for claiming environmentalism is the gospel. And I was trying to figure out where that came from. And I see it now. I see how those points could get connected. So let me say this. Um, What I think is the gospel is the restoration of this planet and all of its creatures and expressly that one creature made in the image of God. Hmm. And that, of course, would be you and me and the rest of humanity. So often Christians approach... Uh, the gospel, as as you've already said, as only about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and even narrower, only about getting me and the people I love into heaven and out of hell. Mm-hmm. When I'm talking to my undergrads, I'm like, you and I both know that you're in this for fire insurance, yeah. and then they <laughs> right. then they all start giggling, and um, and I I sort of throw open the Book of Romans to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, specifically Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul, 
who probably was not a card-carrying member of Greenpeace, I'm mm. just guessing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, talks about how all of creation is groaning and suffering together, the pains of childbirth until this moment. And what creation is waiting for, breathlessly, is the revealing of the sons of God, comma, the redemption of our bodies. Mm. And all of your folks who know Romans super well know that our salvation begins with being born again, the resurrection of the immaterial aspect of our bodies. But salvation is not complete until the physical aspect of our bodies is resurrected as well. So what happens in that grand moment, the telos of creation, everything that went wrong in Eden is reversed. Mm. All those things that were sad are made unsad. I'm thinking of the Jesus storybook, yeah? And Genesis 1 and 2, in its description of the perfect blueprint of this ideal scenario that God has designed for us, that we trashed in one fateful moment of rebellion, that's going to be turned right side up. That's the gospel. Mm. So if that's the gospel, then that means that creation itself has a part to play in this story. And as you know so well, the part of creation in this story has been downplayed, especially in Protestant Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that... So I, that's the entirety of the thing that I would like to unpack, because mm-hmm. I think what your work is doing, so that was a nice summative, what your work is doing is going through actually a variety of passages, not only Genesis, but also Leviticus and Deuteronomy that begin to expound that. Before we get yeah. there, how did we then go wrong? Why did we miss this? You mentioned okay. three things. You mentioned mm. politics. You also mentioned in your book that we live at least in this particular North American United States context, somewhat Mm -hmm. sheltered. um, And we're not really seeing the effects in the same way, although we are starting to, I mean, things are getting worse and worse and worse. Of course, the fires in Canada, most recently Mm -hmm. fires in California in the last couple of years, et cetera. But then you have this third piece, which is the theology, which is that a Mm -hmm. lot of Christians have, you know, essentially understood the gospel in those much more limited terms than the terms that you just now uh, mm-hmm. described. So I guess I just answered the question for you, but I mean, is that a summation of where we went wrong? And, and then I guess my follow-up is like, how, how are you, how, how is your attend, how, how are you oh. attending to fix it? I suppose, or, yeah. Yeah. So this great question, how has the church, the historical moral compass of society gotten so lost on this topic? Because you and I both know that when the church is at her best, Oh my gosh, every hospital, every orphanage, every sex trafficking rescue project on this planet pretty much has been launched by the church. We are very aware of our responsibility to step into a fallen world and make a difference when it comes to uh, relational Uh, spiritual, I'm going to put it in air quotes, needs. But we're not so good at this business about stepping in when it comes to the planet itself. And why is that? So I I list three reasons in the book. And these are three reasons that have grown out of, goodness, almost 15 years of lecturing and teaching on this topic. And I have lectured and taught on this topic everywhere from super uh, politically conservative cattle ranchers in Nebraska to, um, you know, as as left-leaning and progressive as you can get in SoCal. Uh, So the three reasons for me have have kind of become um, almost compass points for the church. And the first one, and the biggest one, is that we don't realize that our Bible speaks to this. We don't. Uh, The issues that involve environmental care, a lot of them are tucked in the Old Testament. And a lot of them, as you've already mentioned, are uh, manifested in the law codes of ancient Israel, where the people of God were being commanded by covenant law to practice sustainable agriculture, to practice humane animal husbandry, to defend the wild creature and its habitat. 
oh my gosh, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Covenant Code and Exodus. But of course, most people don't read those books. And if they do read them, they don't understand them. So that's probably a big part of my, contri my contribution because that's my specialty. Yeah. All right, so people don't realize their Bible speaks to it. That's a big issue. Uh, another one is, is politics, as I've already referred to. Uh, we, particularly in the United States, um, tend to be very nationalistic. We think that our political party is somehow going to bring the kingdom. And I don't care if you're on the left side of the spectrum or the right side of the spectrum. You're pretty sure that if you slap a donkey or an elephant on your computer, that donkey or that elephant is going to bring the kingdom. And... Of course, those of us in ministry, uh, uh, hopefully we know that that is not the case at all. Hmm. We are citizens of another kingdom. Both parties have something good to contribute to that story, and both parties need to be slapped upside the head on many of those issues as well. So our politics get in the way. Hmm. And because, uh, yeah, yeah, and this is even dicey to say this, because the majority of Christians are convinced uh, that human life is uh, expressly valuable, and the Republican Party has been the party that has championed the pro-life movement, there are a whole lot of people out there that think that if you're an environmentalist, you are attached to the wrong party, and therefore environmentalism uh, becomes guilty by association, which is crazy reasoning, yeah. but... It's out there all over the place. So that's another issue. Yeah. A huge one is that we in the very privileged West don't see the impact of our abuse of the environment. We don't live along the Ganges River system. And we don't smell and see the untreated industrial waste, the raw sewage, the incomplete cremations that are rolling down that river system to the point where the UN has actually declared it a dead system, which is unbelievable to me. Uh, we don't see mountaintop removal in our own country. And if you actually live close enough to see it, you are among the poorest of the poor and you don't have a voice. Mm. So we don't see it. That's another issue. And in the midst of that, we don't recognize it as an issue of the care of the widow and the orphan. Whereas if we lived in those regions of West Virginia or those regions of uh, central India, we would see it yeah. as an issue, the care of the widow and the orphan. And then the last one, as you say, um, doesn't Second uh, Peter tell us that it's all going to burn? So shouldn't we get <laughs> yeah. out and about doing what really matters, which is bringing people into the kingdom, not saving raccoons? I don't think... Second Peter was talking about quite literally burning like it is now, though. It's it's all, all sorts right. of... Oh, my gosh. Right. That, yeah. that, that just struck me while you said that. That is all going to burn. Well, technically, yeah, we're, we're in it right now. Uh, you know, I was actually giving a lecture at Denver Seminary last November and had a, a pretty um, empathetic audience. And I found out that there is an acronym for folks who believe it's all going to burn and therefore our anti-environmentalism. The problem is I didn't write it down. Oh. So find out what that acronym is. <laughs> oh, that, that would be helpful. We, uh, terminology is very, very helpful for our understanding. Um, okay, mm -hmm. so you mentioned politics. You mentioned yes. a, a separation of distance and, and privilege and all that kind of yep. stuff. Yep. And it feels to me as if one of the brilliant things that you did here, and honestly, one of the brilliant things of the biblical text is that woven throughout the theological, the narrative structure of the text is actually addressing those very issues. Mm -hmm. um, for for example, you you talk about the the creation story, and you use this word um, kingdoms, or uh, what was what was the exact phraseology that you used there? That we're supposed to be stewards and not mm. kings over yeah. this the these areas that God has created, these habitats. Um, and, but yeah. you also called them kingdoms. So mm -hmm. can you help? our audience uh, understand what is that biblical text doing? What is the, what is the creation mm -hmm. story doing? So when it says that Adam, humans are created in the image, but Salom Elohim, in the image of God, uh, 
we can interpret that as saying, see, I'm special. We're special. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to have, and here's the key phrases, as you know, dominion, and we're supposed to subdue and all of mm -hmm. these kinds of um, interpretations over this Genesis narrative. But you put a very different interpretation on it. Help us understand, uh, especially in the context of an ancient Near Eastern background, what mm -hmm. really is the message that's going on here? So that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have these two descriptions of the creation event. Genesis 1, as everybody knows, is described as this perfect ideal week that climaxes with the Sabbath. And it's poetic, it's beautiful, and it's, um, you know, I, I like to describe it in the book Epic of Eden as though God is, is pulling at seven beautiful snapshots of this amazing moment and then arranging them in theological order. So as each of those seven moments, those seven days is articulated, what we're hearing, the first three days, God creates three habitats, three kingdoms. He creates uh, day and night, he creates the heavens above and the waters below, and he creates dry land. That's days one through three. And then days four through six, he comes back and he creates the inhabitants that go into those kingdoms or habitats. So the sun, moon, and stars are placed in day and night. The birds in the air and the fish in the sea are placed into the heavens and the seas. And then the land animals are placed into the dry land. And then we hit the first great climax of the poem, which is the creation of, of Adam, which means humanity. Yes, it becomes a personal name, but it means the race that is humanity. And as uh, you've already articulated humanity is made above beyond uh, special in so many ways and all you have to do is read Genesis 1 to pick that up because the verbiage quadruples when it comes time to create Adam and Eve so so what is this business about being created in the image of God and in an ancient Near Eastern context the word is selim humanity is created in the selim of the Almighty which uh, literally means, as I'll describe in both books, that um, there's, there's almost a, a satire going on here. Hmm. Uh, in ancient Babylon and ancient Egypt, when humans wanted to create a statue of their god, recognizing that their god was transcendent, but they wanted to bring him down into an incarnate creature on this planet, they would create an idol. Yeah, that's what we call it. Well, they wouldn't have called it an idol. They would call it a tselem. And then they would go through this very complex and very legislated ritual process by which they animated the tselem. And then once the statue was perceived as alive, they would take that statue, place it into their temple, and from that point on, they would feed it, they would clothe it, they would take it out hunting, they would take it to festivals, and some of the reports are, are, are comical, actually, with what they do with these now animated statues. And that's, of course, why it was such a coup to steal somebody else's idol in a war, because you are actually stealing an animate representation of their deity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the ancient mm -hmm. world background. And now our biblical author is trying to explain what makes humanity so unique and he names us selim oh my gosh um the biblical law is very clear that humanity doesn't cr get to create idols we don't get to worship images why <laughs> because our god has already created his image and it's us mm. and uh i would put that into a teaching moment of this we don't get to create god in our image. Rather, God gets to recreate us, fallen humanity, in his. Oh. And so when we get to the New Testament, um, we're crashing into language about how the sun is made in the exact representation, the image of the Almighty, that Jesus is the perfect selim, and we're kind of photocopies. God, that's a very rough way to explain that. So what does that mean we are? It means we are not deity, be very clear on that, but we are the closest thing to deity in the created order. We bear his image like um, a child bears the image of their parents, and we have been given this very special role of having dominion over all the rest of creation. 
And that dominion <laughs> is dominion that is entrusted to us through the one who actually has all dominion. So the Almighty entrusts us um, like a king entrusts a steward. And that's where I get my title. And yes, I am a Lord of the Rings girl. And <laughs> yes, I am thinking about Faramir and I'm thinking about Denethor. Are they truly the offspring of the kings of Numenor? No, they're not. <laughs> but they are entrusted with a kingdom. So we're entrusted with a kingdom. And that is part of our incredibly special role. Most environmentalists are very uncomfortable with words like sovereignty and dominion. I, I'm not uncomfortable with them at all because, of course, the creator is modeling to humanity how it is we're supposed to exercise our dominion. Mm. We're supposed to rule as we've been ruled. And most specifically in Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord God took the human and put him into the Garden of Eden to tend it and to defend it. Mm -hmm. That's our role. And if we take the creation blueprint seriously, which I know we do, where is that command in the way we're living our lives? So I, I guess, can you be even more explicit? Because the prominence of dominion and subdue from mm -hmm. chapter one Yep. seems to still take precedent, at least in the minds mm -hmm. of a lot of this theology. So mm -hmm. at what what is your way of reconciling or prioritizing chapter two, which is this service? What is the mm -hmm. way to understand that? Because, I mean, it's very clear to have dominion, to let to subdue the earth. This is and if we're going to rule or be stewards in the way that God is, you know, really, heck, God destroyed the entire world through a flood. So why can't we just have that same level of authority, sovereignty, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera? I'm, of course, playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. So Thank you yeah. for pushing me on that question. So going back, looking at these two accounts of creation, they both have different ambitions, just like the Gospel of John has a different ambition than the Gospel of Matthew. They're both telling the same story. Um, Genesis chapter 1 is all about who goes where, and who's in charge of what. And that's why we have days one, two, three, four, five, six, and who's day seven? Mm -hmm. And that would be God who rests on the seventh day, who enthrones himself over his creation on the seventh day. The whole point of the fall is that humanity was not willing to accept the authority of the creator. That's the whole, that's what we did. We said, we want to decide what is good and evil. We want to make our own decisions. We want to call our own shots. We want our dominion to be absolute. And that is what triggers the greatest tragedy in all of history. Yeah? Mm. Um, so what did we do? We rejected the dominion of the creator. We wanted to do it our way. Mm. Our dominion was always and forever supposed to be subject to his and one of the things I do in the book, and in a very standard biblical theological fashion, I ask the question, what is God's posture toward creation? What is God's posture toward the land, toward the creatures, wild and domestic, toward the preservation of habitat, toward the value of this planet, and uh, what, what is his plan for its end goal? I ask that question over and over again throughout all of the covenants that we've seen in the biblical text. And the answer keeps coming up every single time. A, it's mine, Yahweh says. You preserve it for the next generation. Don't you dare abuse it because it's not yours. You are a renter. I am the landlord. If you mess with my property, there will be a security deposit that you will lose. <laughs> yeah. I love that uh, phraseology. That, yeah, that's, that it was very early on in your book. I think it was page 17 where you used that phrase renter and not landlord, which mm. is a really helpful kind of uh, metaphorical analogy for us to understand exactly mm. what our position is in. Um, let, so let's, let's jump to some of these because you used this phrase earlier agricultural sustainability yeah. in Leviticus tied mm. specifically to the Sabbath. Um, and you mentioned that within the law codes, within these um, commandments that are given, specifically in Leviticus, that can seem so mm -hmm. difficult and challenging for <laughs> a lot of readers of, of the modern day, um, woven into these 
do this, do that, put blood here, <laughs> you know, th th these kinds of <laughs> things are actually some fundamental principles. And you tied agricultural sustainability with Sabbath. Can you explain how those two work out? And which is, to me, honestly, a whole other level of Sabbath mm -hmm. and Sabbath keeping and Sabbath understanding that I think is really beautiful and brilliant that we should consider. Yeah, and um, you're so right. Leviticus is so hard to read. Most people jump right past it. But as you've also already indicated, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and uh, chapters 19 through 23 in the book of Exodus are law codes. And they are law codes of an actual functioning society. And too often we think about these people as just figures on a flannel graph, you know. Um, but it's an actual functioning society. And Leviticus 25 um, speaks very specifically to the fact that every farmer, and most of these people were farmers, that's another problem with our society, very few of us are farmers at this mm. point in time, that uh, the land had to be taken care of. And it had to be taken care of so that it would continue to be fertile. This idea of short-term, a short-term response, um, the tyranny of the urgent, get everything I can out of the land right here and right now, and who cares what happens 30 years from now, that was illegal in ancient Israel. And so Leviticus 25 speaks about giving the land a Sabbath rest. And it reads like this, but during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath belonging to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard, your harvest after growth, you will not reap, the grapes of your untrimmed vines you will not gather. Rather, the Sabbath growth of the land will be your food belonging to you and your servants, your hired man, your temporary resident, the immigrants among you, even your domesticated beast and the wild animal that's in your land shall have all its crops to eat. So what is this about? Well, the farmers who are listening, they're like, oh yeah, what they're doing is they're fallowing their land. And what a fallow year allows the land to do is to restore itself. It allows a nitrogen-rich crop to be grown, um, you know, dandelions, crown vetch, a certain type of beans. Uh, they'll grow and have all sorts of nitrogen. You plow it back under. And all of that refurbishes the soil, gives it back uh, the nutrient load it needs to produce healthy food. It also puts the temper back in the soil that helps it hold on to water. If you allow your field to go Sabbath every, uh, sorry, to go fallow every seventh year, that field's going to keep producing for 30, 40, 60, 100 years. Mm. But if you don't allow the land to go fallow periodically, you're going to strip it of its long-term fecundity. Isn't that mm. a great word? <laughs> and uh, so much of what's happening in our food supply right now in the States is because our soil no longer has a nutritional value. Mm. So like the standard apple that you buy at the grocery store right now has about 30% of the nutritional value that the apple that your grandparents picked up at the store. Because we're not caring for our soil. We're pumping it full of chemicals, um, hoping that uh, it'll keep producing. But reality is, as every scientist has demonstrated, that the land can only take so much forcing of productivity. And then it collapses. Yeah. And when it collapses, you wind up with a barren landscape. For example, how many images of uh, Iran have you seen on the news, mm. uh, specifically around Baghdad, let's say? That's the territory that used to be the Garden of Eden. What happened to that territory? Thousands of years of human settlement. What happened with those thousands of years of human settlement, but thousands of years of humans who were pumping the land to produce all that it, it could? And in the law code of Hammurabi, we actually know there was a Sabbath ordinance to keep the land healthy, but that not a Sabbath ordinance, excuse me, a fallow law. Um, but the farmers refused it, and they kept sh cutting it uh, shorter and shorter and shorter in order to produce more and more and more. And one of the results is collapsed yeah. uh, agricultural land. Yeah. So it's in the law, and yeah. it's repeated not only in Leviticus, but in Exodus and in Deuteronomy as well. And when the farmer push, pushes back, 
and says, team, I'm barely making it. I got to put my kids through school. I don't know where the mortgage uh, payment is coming from. Yahweh responds with, why are you going to do this? You're going to do it because the land is mine and I am Yahweh. Full stop. Yeah. Yeah. Full stop. There's so many brilliant and beautiful layers to that. Number one, the the absence of our connection with the land in a modern mm -hmm. society is a huge yes. piece of that. Two, this is a little bit of a footnote and a side note, that extrapolation of Leviticus and Sabbath also suggests that for us, then Sabbath rest or what it means to honor the Sabbath is to also think long-term. I, I, I don't yes. know if I've ever connected yes. long-term thinking and long-term production with Sabbath rest, because it's like, oh, I just need a break from the week. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's usually considered that way. Mm -hmm. um, and there's that yard work that we were talking about before. <laughs> Do you, you want me to move inside? I'm also losing the daylight. It's, um, I think it's okay. Well, I, I think we'll, we'll be okay. Um, okay. But then the third thing that I'd like to pull out, which will take us to my next question, uh, is that by engaging and reading these texts and extrapolating all of this goodness that you're talking about, we can reclaim some of that connection. And that's what is kind of so brilliant about these texts. And you mentioned that the Code of Hammurabi have these particular codes. That, and, and I think it's one of the things that we often forget is that the Bible wasn't these texts weren't just written in, in some sort of vacuum where, you yeah. know, Yahweh pulls it down and it's like, okay, I have some uh, I have some random ideas for you to do. It is actually within the context of other cultures violating these principles, including, and, and not just the Assyrians, but the Romans and the Greeks as well. I mean, this seems to continue on. Um, I want to throw up this picture here because you mm -hmm. mentioned this picture in uh, your book, and uh, yes. I, I was so thrilled to have read it before I actually got to the British Museum. Tell our audience, what is it that we're looking at, and why is this really important to the Deuteronomical uh, Commission and Commandment? Because this, I think, is an illustration of other cultures behaving in a certain way, and why the brilliance of the biblical text is trying to mm -hmm. teach this different way. Mm -hmm. And I'll leave it up for a little bit for people to, to see. Okay. And can I just say, you are the coolest podcast person in the world. Because <laughs> I've never gotten to talk about this image on a podcast. So you are totally I will take it. my day. I will yeah. take it. Dr. Sandra Richter said, I am the coolest podcast <laughs> host. I will take it. You are by far the coolest. Take that Preston sprinkle. Just kidding. Uh, okay. <laughs> Love Preston. Okay. So um, what you're looking at is an image of the Assyrians coming back from the lion hunt. And one of the kind of social media presentations that they always uh, put out to the populace to prove that the king was worthy of their trust and their confidence was this depiction of the king single-handedly defeating a lion, wrestling him to the ground. And so there would be this big lion hunt that always had to accompany the ro royal media release, right? And so if we were to move to, uh, it, it, as you look at the screen, as you look to the right, you can see the male lions that have been slain and are being um, dragged back to the palace to display the brilliance and the ferocity of the great king. Okay, mm. um, this is a, a standard practice for the Assyrians. The Israelites actually don't have that sort of iconography connected to the king, for which we're grateful because that Persian lion that they're carrying in those images is now extinct. Wonder why that might be. Mm. Yeah. Um, but we do have a fabulous story, by the way, of a young man who actually did wrestle a lion to defend the flock of God. Um, go, David, go. And as you saw in the British Museum, those Assyrian kings were not actually wrestling a lion alone. It was canned hunting. The lions had already been caged. He's got guards all around him. They're just trying to get that one shot, you know, for the Instagram post. Okay. They so, had Instagram back then? <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Um, so that's what's going on uh, primarily in that piece. But as you look to the left side, what you also see is that some of those servants of the great king of Assyria are carrying birds' nests. How odd. And they have in their hands 
the mother bird. So a bird's nest with the eggs in it and a mother bird, which makes us have to conclude that it wasn't just capturing the lion that was a mark of royal prowess, but somehow capturing a mother bird with her nest and with her eggs spoke into the dynamic. Okay, so you're seeing this in Assyria. These are the big boys. These are the power people. You know, these are all the famous Hollywood types. Those are marks of success. Um, and now we take a look at Deuteronomy. And we're in chapter 22, listening to all of the various laws that God is commanding. And it reads as follows in verse 6. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may be well with you and you may have a long life in the land. So right here in the Law Code of Israel, which conservative datings would put it about 1200 BC, what we're hearing about is sustainability. Hmm. Yeah, I know you haven't actually domesticated the chicken yet. You don't get scrambled eggs for breakfast unless you actually find a bird's nest with eggs still in them. So you can have the eggs, but you can't take the mother too because she needs to be able to reproduce for the next season. Uh, the antiquity of this law, the sensitivity to the longevity of the wild creature, and the critique against what the Assyrians are doing just slays me every time. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And that is just one example of multiple yes. examples, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. the entire text is doing not just divine commands, but also cultural commentary and agricultural mm -hmm. sustainability principles and practices, which mm -hmm. are in many ways just directly in line with the entire Genesis narrative that we were talking about before to care for mm -hmm. and to, pr to protect and to, to guard the land. And um, one of the critiques that I think is very helpful for your listeners is a lot of folks think that if you're going to be environmentally sensitive, you need to become a vegan and move into mm, a cardboard box somewhere, mm. right? Um, the text is not declaring that. It is saying you can have the eggs. You just can't have the eggs and the mother. Yes, you can plow your land. Yes, you can work hard. And you can get six years of harvest into your home. But the seventh year? belongs to me. Mm -hmm. It is a command over and over and over again to live with restraint. Mm -hmm. And I say this a lot in the book because this is not an American ideal. Yeah? As much as I can get, as fast as I can get, as often as I can get. There's the American, you know, the great American dream. And what the Sabbath ordinance and these various law that I detail in the book uh, illustrate is no. A populace is not actually allowed, allowed to take from the land everything it can. It is allowed to take what it needs, but it's not allowed to mm. just decimate in greed. Mm. That's where the line is. Mm. That's, really, that's really helpful, I think, because there's so much conflation of various values and virtues when it comes to this and so much extremism, I suppose. In, mm -hmm. all, in all of that. So that's really helpful. Um, it, towards the end of your book and the conclusion, uh, because after all of this, and, and we could spend a lot of time, I think, going through multiple passages and trying to extrapolate these fundamental principles. Um, you have this quote from Gus Speth, the chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality under President Jimmy Carter, um, which I think is really leading to this, because I think a lot of the times when we talk about you know, biblical scholarship, ancient Near East, Assyrians, like, I, I if we're honest, and I'm sure you probably feel this because you work with undergrads, that some eyes glaze <laughs> over because, like, what is really the ultimate value of, of, of some of this stuff? It can sometimes feel very academic or so heavenly minded that it's no earthly good. But mm. I love what you did in the book because you tied in these biblical principles with very real contemporary news reports and, and things that are happening mm. Um such as the mining, um, uh, you know, explo exploitation of the animals, etc. So I really appreciate that. But he, he writes this, Gus writes this, uh, that you quote him. 
I used to think, oh, there goes the train. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Why would you put in that quote into your book, Dr. Sandra Richter? <laughs> Tell me, what is that? What does that mean? Oh, my gosh. I, I want to preach that quote is what yeah. I want to do. Um, so Gus Speth is a total insider, right? He is a card-carrying environmentalist. There's no question about it. He's not. He was not only the EPA officer under Jimmy Carter, um, he has created and served in multiple um, environmental projects. He actually gave this quote in an interview when he was retiring, yeah? And so he's looking back on his, his life and his investments, and he's thinking, I, I didn't accomplish anything, which is devastating for any of us. But when I listen to him, a, a hard scientist, someone who knows all the inside workings of the Nature Conservancy and Sierra and Audubon and all of these amazing organizations. He's like, hey, you know what? The answer isn't science. The answer is moral reform. Mm -hmm. And when I hear that, that quote, Kevin, all I can think is put me in, coach. Because I know a whole bunch of people who know exactly how to do that. Mm. And that's what we do. That's what we do the best of. I mean, I think of Amy Carmichael going over to India and single-handedly interrupting the sex trafficking in the temples in India. How does she do that? She did that with a level of conviction that is only born of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And I'll get, I'll get on interviews and, and they'll ask me, all right, Richter. What's your big idea? You know, we're not interested in you unless you got a big idea. And here's my big idea. That there is no organization on this planet that knows better how to change the heart and the soul of a nation than the church. Mm -hmm. And if I can awaken the sleeping giant mm -hmm. and put this task squarely into our hands, we will change the world. Mm -hmm. Because we, we know how to deal with selfishness, apathy, and greed. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that is, so I'm totally on board with you. And this is going to bring us, I think, full circle to the opening part of your book, mm. which is we've lost that way. And the reclamation of what you just said mm -hmm. is the hard work going through a, a, a critical analysis of what these passages were exhorting us to do mm -hmm. and to think and to consider as part of that hard work. And it feels to me like we need to, you know, put a cap on the end to say, reiterate again, what is that gospel that changes hearts and minds? Because I think when, you, when traditional evangelical conservative Christianity mm -hmm. or popular Christianity here changes heart and, hearts and minds, there is this so embedded impulse of going to heaven when you die, making you a moral person, mm -hmm. making sure that you don't cuss, you don't have sex before marriage, um, you know, and you and you make sure that you you know pay your taxes on time or whatever. Mm -hmm. But you're, don't you drink, don't drink, don't, dance or chew, or run with girls who do. That's yeah. exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh -huh. So reiterate this expanded vision of that moral vision connected with mm -hmm. quote unquote the gospel. The redemption okay. of all creation. Okay. So the bottom line here is this fact that our planet belongs to our to our, our creator. It does not belong to us. This is not our stuff. And since it's not our stuff, we've been commissioned to steward it for his purposes. Uh, just the way the same way I would look at the ministry that God has called me to, the parenting that God has called me to, the sanctification of my own life that God has called me to, none of these purposes are my own. I am submitting to the sovereignty of God in my life. So if I can see in the text that the character of God is that he values and treasures this planet and that he has a plan for it, 
and that that plan is to redeem and resurrect it, then part of the sanctification process in my life is coming to love the things that God loves and committing my resources, being it my time, my behavior, my, um, my, my monetary resources, to the things that he is committing his time and resources oh. to. So let me read this passage out of Romans 8 for us. I think this might be a great way to bring all of these things together. Um, this is Paul. He's talking to a community of faith who are suffering terribly, and he's trying to reassure them that their labor is not in vain, that uh, they're headed for something far better, that tell us that we were talking about. So what does he say? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope. He's talking about the fall, right? In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Mm. So what Paul is doing is he's placing the resurrection of this planet right next to the resurrection of the heirs of the kingdom. Oh my gosh. (laughs) There is nothing Paul cares about more than the resurrection of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve to step into our inheritance, which will be a resurrected planet. That is his top concern. He's going to be martyred for this. And he places right next to it in Romans chapter 8 that same vision that we're going to see in Revelation 21, which is a resurrected planet. So when we ask the question, what is God's ultimate plan for all of the flora and fauna and amazing things that this planet offers us? And the answer is his ultimate goal is to redeem it, just like his ultimate goal is to redeem us. So just like you and I and the orphans in Darfur and the refugees in Sudan, just like all of us are not disposable, neither is this planet. Mm. And I do not think that our Heavenly Father can be pleased with us until we share that aspect of his character in our own. Yeah, That sounds uh, incredibly commensurate with well, the entirety of the biblical narrative culminating mm-hmm. in, in Revelation 21, 22, where heaven and earth mm-hmm. actually come together um, yeah. and a, a new recreation of Eden uh, happens where the yes. leaves of the tree are for the healing, for the of, healing the of the nations. Yeah. Oh, so, my gosh. <laughs> so I can, I can hardly read that paragraph without breaking into tears. Yeah. And, I, and I find myself on a regular basis saying, please, Jesus, let it be true. Yeah, I mean, I believe I've I have staked my life on those truths, but the story is so phenomenal that this planet will be resurrected, that all of the extinct creatures, all of the the eradicated mountains in West Virginia, the the Ganges River system, all the things we're talking about, this is going to be resurrected and that I'm going to get to live there. Bring it. Bring it. Danielle says, amazing insight, so fantastic. She's uh, the senior pastor of our, our church. She, go, she, she says, <laughs> preach, preach. Um, and then Sean asked this question. I think we addressed okay. it, but you might want to expound upon it a little bit more. Uh, I want uh, to hear more hell. about the how. What yeah. is the church's playbook for dealing with selfishness, apathy, and greed? Um, and I was kind of curious what kind of receptivity this message because mm. you do teach undergraduates you are speaking yep. in variety of, of places uh, you, you know what kind of receptivity is is being had with this kind of message because i mm-hmm. can imagine you're fighting an uphill battle mm-hmm. um in many ways yeah so um let me say first of all that the book has got uh, an appendix to it 
that's called um, Resources for the Responsive uh, Christian. Mm. And the idea is, okay, let's let's actually start practicing this. And let me encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast, you don't get holy overnight, not in any aspect of your life. So <laughs> don't expect to become like a five-star environmentalist overnight either. The, these uh, things take time. I'm very sorry. That's what we promised our audience after the end of this oh, conversation. Shoot. So <laughs> Shoot. I've let you down. Okay. So Every one of us can respond to this in our own private space. Every one of us has influence over these issues. Um, every church property, for sure, has influence mm. over this issue because your church property, you might not have ever looked at it this way, is um, <laughs> a huge facility that consumes a great deal of energy that plants plants that could be planting native instead of planting whatever Lowe's is selling, um, the way you deal with your water, the way your energy, even your coffee cups, all of these are significant. Okay, so how we've got some practical steps toward the environmental, but Sean specifically asked about dealing with selfishness, apathy, and greed. And uh, first of all, I don't know about you, but when I got saved, all of a sudden I found out there was a lot of stuff about me that I thought was perfectly okay that wasn't okay. And the Holy Spirit started convicting me and started pressing me. And then in my own personal story, that I got married and I found out how really selfish I was. And then when I thought I had that down, I started having kids. <laughs> <laughs> and then I became an undergraduate professor and found out that I'm just a complete loser. Okay, um, <laughs> all that to say, uh, the Holy Spirit transforms us. And because we innately believe in our own sinfulness as the community of Christ, I think we have more potential for responding to the self-sacrifice that goes into living a restrained life than probably most people do. Um, we are already well-versed in the idea that um, restraint in the way we live, having someone else call the shots in our life, that this is okay. And that's not most of the population. So I think that we can respond to that selfishness, apathy, and greed better than most communities. Um, I don't know. Um, push me further. I'm I probably lost the train of the question. No, I, I think it's part of the challenge of the how. The how is always a, a difficult question. I think, I mean, all all of what we're doing is culminating in that particular response, which is to submit yourself to the story, to engage with the narrative, to find mm -hmm. yourself in the full thrust of this biblical story that's unfolding if you are a Christian and committed to the living in this particular way. And through that, the Spirit works on you, right? And as you mentioned, mm -hmm. throw in all of your experiences for which you um, apply those biblical principles and, yeah, just continual work upon our hearts and our, our spirits. And the education, oh, I, I have a good how. Pick mm -hmm. up Stewards of Eden, read it, do a book, book study, do a book club, and then really yeah. consider carefully about how um, you can uh, make some significant changes. And, and yeah, just a quick glance at the appendix had some really wonderful things. I love that you mentioned uh, church buildings. Um, there's an organization called Climate Stewards who um, are doing that very thing. They're actually creating a tool for churches. I can put that in the notes uh, for churches oh, to do an, an analysis to me if you would yeah. please yeah yeah um, um matthew, matthew sleeth has done a lot on that front but we need more we need more and more mm -hmm. um and because i just thought of it i don't want to forget it um can i say that i think environmental missions is the missions movement of the 21st century because environmental degradation hits the marginalized first and so countries like haiti um, countries like Madagascar are just being torn to shreds based on past overuse of their land. Um, I know a dozen beloved believers who've packed up their babies and their, uh, their suitcases and have headed into these territories at great cost to plant trees, uh, educate sustainable agriculture and do it all in the name of Jesus. Mm. So that's another way we do this. Can I also say that, Love Kevin, you, you'd, you'd said that often uh, you would anticipate that I'm um, kind of swimming upstream with this message. Can I say that in the last 10, 12 years of dealing with this message, the stream has switched directions, mm. which I find very interesting. 
when I first started talking about this stuff and, and pressing people to allow me to address environmentalism as an issue of holiness, uh, as I first got my, my uh, trepidatious invitations into pulpits, I would get tons of pushback uh, with, you know, how dare you dilute the gospel. Um, I gave an entire series of holiness lectures at a college that will not be named. And in an entire week of being their special speaker, the crowd topped out at 27 in a college that had 4,000 people in it. I had a walkout once um, where, you know, people stood up and stomped out of the lecture. That was when I was swimming upstream as in this is a Christian issue. But now the stream has shift, mm -hmm. shifted. And so at another college that will not be named, I got to preach from the pulpit. I got rousing amens. And in the faculty talk back, I was canceled because I was not necessarily a supporter of ecofeminism and the biotic rights of all trees and rocks. Mm. And instead was pressing the message that the sovereignty of God is what calls us to be involved. So that's a very interesting thing as well. And let that me just is fascinating. One, it is fascinating. And let me just throw out one other thing. We've got a lot of people around us, meaning we the church have a lot of people around us who have listened to caricatures of who Christians are and what Christianity affirms. And one of those caricatures is that we're all, it's all going to burn people. And so we have become irrelevant in one of the most critical discussions of our time, that being climate change. What would it do to the people in your office building, to the folks who sit in class with you at UC whatever, if you pulled out Stewards of Eden and invited them into a discussion of environmentalism through a Christian lens? Mm. What a concept. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful plug. It was also very much commensurate. I had a conversation with Dorothy Bourse and Brian Webb mm. uh, last December um, uh -huh. on evangelicals because the National Association of Evangelicals published this report. And basically the, the really uh, telling piece of that report was that climate change is actually undoing decades yes. of work that evangelicals have been doing in developing uh, nations and so you taught you talking about environmental missions is just a mm -hmm. perfect capstone to mm -hmm. that conversation which i so appreciate okay the okay. gospel sandra sandy sorry sandy is <laughs> the redemption of the entire created world yes the biblical narrative substantiates this vision not only in the genesis narrative but through the law codes, through the mm -hmm. prophets, yes. through the gospels, through the letters of Paul, yes. etc., culminating in Revelation when heaven and earth come together. And this is not a technological problem where science is going to solve it. It is truly about our hearts and mm. our souls and our sense of connection with the grand story, with the world around us with our commitment to, shall we call, say, Yahweh, to the way of Jesus as the transformation of our selfishness, our greed, our pride, which manifests itself in extractionism and mm -hmm. dominion, if we can say in that particular way. So all of this affects atonement, redemption, salvation, the image of God, and our relationship with the land. It does all mm -hmm. of that. And, and our witness to the lost. And when our wit. see yes. us consuming with no thought for anyone else. What, is, what does that communicate to a lost and dying world? Yeah. yeah. And it's all summed up <laughs> in the steward. <laughs> uh, Sandy, thank you so much. Uh, Stacy says, thank you for sharing with us tonight and for all the teaching and lecturing you do to share this message. Um, Sean replied back, I love the, the lesson about the image and likeness language. Uh. I had never heard that before. Uh, and it deepens the text quite a lot. And I would absolutely agree. Sandy, thank you so much. Um, I'm 
tremendously thrilled that your voice continues to influence others in this in this issue. It is um, the most important critical um, issue of our time, of our generation, and to recognize and to teach that this is actually core and central to the faith that so many of us hold is just a profound gift uh, and insight and hopefully uh, transformative for for everyone uh, mm -hmm. in all this. So thank you so much. Thank you for giving voice to it. This has been tons of fun. Yay. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, uh, they're coming in hot and fast. Patty <laughs> says, really good to think of the gospel as the redemption of the entire created world. Barbara says, thank you for this wonderful talk. You had me at the mother and the chicks. <laughs> so wonderful. All right. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us online. We hope that you had a wonderful time. And Sandy, thank you so much for everything. Have a good night. Right. You're welcome. Good night. Mm -hmm.